Hi, my name's Tom, and I'm the co-host of the Future Proofing Finance podcast for the CFA. We dig deep into the latest innovations and technologies which are disrupting finance in the digital age. And yes, sometimes we talk about crypto. Today, in fact, we're going to talk a lot about crypto, and I'm very excited to be joined by Robbie Jung, the CEO of Animoca Brands. And I'm personally excited because he's the first of our guests to be a native crypto investor himself. Uh, so we might get the bull case, perhaps, around crypto. Quick disclosure, Animoca has an investment in the startup that I founded, and without their investment and support, I wouldn't have been able to navigate the world of Web3. Ben, over to you. Hi, Robbie. Thanks for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me. So I have to confess, I'm a boring old banker by background, so I'm usually the biggest skeptic and cynic, like most bankers on this side of things. But Is that because you're a banker or because you're boring and old? <laughs> I always aspired to be a young fogey uh, and, and, and you know I, I trained well and I effortlessly moved into the part as I got older so um, thanks very much for coming on Robbie would you be able to give us a backstory in terms yeah. of how did you end up doing now getting involved in web3 and, and crypto absolutely um, so I've been in I guess what the bankers call TMT my whole career um, I've done all three and uh, I've spent the last, you know, I, I, my journey in technology started out in telecoms um, back when it was analog, which some boring old bankers may remember. Um, and uh, then I started out working on the web, actually, in the 90s. Um, and that was when Yat, the co-founder and, and chairman of Animoca Brands, and I first met. We became friends because we had startups at the same time in Hong Kong. It was a very small web startup community, and all the entrepreneurs knew each other. And we were all... Um, naive and um, ambitious and wide-eyed optimists. Um, and we tried to build interesting things on the web and some of them worked and some of them didn't. Um, <clears throat> and I had one of the ones that worked until it didn't. Um, and then uh, and then I spent 10 years in traditional media um, before reconnecting with Yant um, in a professional capacity to join him at Animoca Brands. Um, so this was about 11 years ago uh, and the company was firmly... Um, you know, in, entrenched in the beginnings of what became the mobile game industry. So um, Animoca Brands is by heritage a, a mobile game developer. And as we grew um, over the years, we were always looking for ways in which to innovate. Um, and as mobile handset penetration, um, you know, became uh, deeper and the market um, rate of growth started to slow down a little bit, we were looking for new creative ways to kind of you know, flex our muscles in what we knew about de delivering consumer entertainment, and we hit across blockchain. And uh, so this was in 2017. <clears throat> we discovered blockchain and had the good fortune to work with a team um, who was looking to create a game um, based on blockchain, essentially tokenizing in-game assets. Um, and this game was a collectible game where you could collect pictures of uh, cats, cartoon cats, um, and it made a little bit of a sensation um, in the market. Uh, the game was called CryptoKitties. Uh, this was the end of 2017. And famously, it kind of brought the Ethereum network uh, grinding to a halt around Christmas of 2017 because people were so excited about buying pictures of cats. Um, but I think more importantly, it was the dawn of what uh, we now know as the NFT or the non-fungible token. Um, so our friends and partners at what's now called Dapper Labs, uh, who we worked with on that game, um, invented the NFT in August of that year for the purpose of creating a game about cartoon cats. Um, but I think it was more of a proof of concept than anything else. The idea that you could create a unique digital asset um, that was immutable, that was you know something that was completely able to be secure and protected because we'd never had a digital asset like that before. Um, and 
it's intriguing to think about what happens when you can start to confer property rights around digital items. So that was really kind of the watershed moment. I think a lot of our listeners are going to uh, find that quite a uh, quite a lot to chew off. Uh, we might have to jump into some some of those sections. I think you know, I, 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 it'd be fair to say most have heard of Bitcoin and Ethereum, and obviously some of the other uh, crypto coins. But you've jumped straight into NFTs, and I'd love to maybe go down that rabbit hole first. Then um, it was invented uh, by Dapper Labs in the in, in Crypto Kitties, and it's come a long way since then. Um, maybe maybe you could explain some of what has driven the hype in NFTs and then also what some of the exciting like use cases can be in the future. Because I think a lot of people get stuck on valuation and all sorts of things. We're all boring financial bankers or whatever, but like, let's move that one to the side and we can, I'm sure Ben will like to ask you on that later. But uh, if we could start with the optimistic, what are the things that are being solved that'd be really interesting? Sure. I think maybe the simplest way to look at it is to think about the fundamentals of what what it means to have digital property rights, to have true digital ownership. Um, because this was something that I think for us in the game industry seemed like the light bulb moment for us was very quick. Um, because the game industry historically, for you know, better part of 15 years, game companies have made money from in-game economies where people spend virtual currency to buy virtual items. And so gamers understand this idea of virtual economies very well. Um, it's become a habit, and you know, gamers spend upwards of $200 billion a year globally buying virtual stuff, you know, famously things like skins in Fortnite or swords and gold in, you know, World of Warcraft, et cetera. And there are usually two different types of assets. There are fungible assets, so in-game currencies, which, you know, you can, on your mobile, you can spend your Apple Pay or, or Google Wallet um, fiat money on buying credits in a game. Um, and then you have in-game items, and those in-game items are unique items, whether it's a race car or a sword or a horse, whatever it is. Um, and those can be tokenized as non-fungible tokens because they're unique, you know. Um, whereas the in-game currency, like a Bitcoin, for example, is they're not unique. Every Bitcoin is the same as every other Bitcoin. It's more like a like a like currency. And so, for us in the game industry, we saw this ability to tokenize as being a, a natural extension. Um, for what we do in games, because we're actually not asking our game players to change their behavior at all by adopting tokenization. They'll still spend virtual currency to buy virtual stuff. Um, it just so happens that these things will be encrypted on the blockchain. <clears throat> and what does that mean? That means that we move away from a centralized system um, where the software developer owns and is the sort of king of everything that happens in their castle, where there's basically one person who makes all the rules about everything, to a world which is much more like the open source software movement, where there are the network effects of communities being able to interoperate their software between each other. I'll give you an example of this. So let's say I have a game with a racing car in it. <clears throat> Today, in the way that software works, I can buy virtual racing cars and race in the game all day long, spend as much money as I want, et cetera. But that's it. It's only a one-way sort of system. I spend money, I buy virtual items, I spend time. That's it. And if I want to sell those cars, if I want to you know, take that game and sell it secondhand to my friend the way I did when I was a kid and I had an Atari cartridge and I could sell it secondhand at a you know, computer games workshop or some kind of, some kind of secondhand shop, you can't do that with digitized software. 
right? There's no way to transfer the ownership of that software because the problem is that that software is not protected. It's infinitely copyable. There has never been a way until blockchain has come along to really <clears throat> control digital copyright efficiently. And so now that we can do that, it opens up an incredible potential of being able to think about what it means to actually own unique digital stuff that can be transferred and that ownership can be transferred. And so what happens is that I can think about a world where I can take that digital car that I own in that one game and take it to a second game that also supports that digital car because they support this open standard of NFTs that can be used from one game to the next. And that there is a cross incentive, and we can get into the weeds of this in a bit, that al allows for there still to be royalties to be paid on future sales from peer to peer of all those, of all those items. And so what we're doing is we're trying to bring down the walls between software applications that have historically always existed so that we can get software to interoperate and work together much more efficiently because for gamers and for consumers that's much more exciting you know if i have if i if i spend all my time and money kitting out my virtual car in you know because i love cars it's the color i like it's got the wheels i like it's got the special paint job that i spent hours working on photoshop in or whatever it is I want to be able to use that car in every game, not just the one game in which I created it. It's my identity because we increasingly live our lives, you know, more and more in virtual digital spaces. And so for me, it's great that I can bring this thing around with me from place to place. That's the gaming example. From a financial perspective, it becomes even more exciting. <clears throat> and so from a financial perspective, once we have digital property rights, then we can start to build asset value. Now, let me th um, kind of explain this. If you go back to the car analogy, if you think about um, the original creation of the motor vehicle, right? So the car was created and it was, in the language of blockchain, an open and composable asset, right? That's what we would call it if it was a digital token. So a car is an open asset. And why do I say it's an open asset? Because if you buy a car from Ford or BMW, you don't need to ask the permission of Ford or BMW before you drive on a road. I can't, I'm, if I buy a BMW, I'm not restricted to only driving on BMW roads. But in the world of software, that's what we have today. I can only use the software under the very strict guidelines that the software developer has created. I can't do what I like with it, even though I own it. So the reality is I don't own it, right? I'm only renting it. Um, now, what happens when you have these incredible open assets? So to go back to the car analogy, once you have this car that has been created, because it's an open asset, other businesses can then grow in its wake. So for example, you can have petrol stations, you can have tire manufacturers, you can have baby seat makers, you can have paint shops. All of these businesses can be created because of this open asset that exists, which is the car, because they don't need the permission of BMW again, to open a paint shop to paint BMWs. You don't need their permission to have a petrol station to service them, right? But in today's digital world, you need all those permissions because software is largely not interoperable. So imagine if we can transition from a world where we essentially have zero ability to create asset value. All digital assets today are basically valued at zero, right, off the blockchain because they're infinitely copyable. They have no value to a world in which all those all that time that we spend online can then generate asset value on top of those digital items. Sorry, that was a really long answer to your question.
That's all good. I um, you're preaching to the converted here. I mean, I run a NFT uh, gaming studio, and we we use other people's NFTs all the time. But I'm just trying to frame up this, trying to approach it from the perspective of someone, not a layperson, but someone who's probably hearing about NFTs for maybe the second time in their lives. They heard about you know Board Ape or whatever it was. And so I thought maybe I could zoom out from that a little bit because I think digital ownership and the way that the royalties and the structure of that ecosystem works is super nuanced and interesting. But I, I'd like to ask, do you think it's kind of leading, like this is an instance of, you know, you've been in technology a long time, like the technology leading more use cases? Because one of the criticisms I hear quite a lot is, you know, more broadly in Web3 that, you know, it's like a hammer looking for a nail. And I feel like sometimes there's a bit of that there. And I'm just wondering... Does it need to know what the what the answer is, like where it's going, or is it just does it start in gaming and other people figure out how to use it? So I think we always saw gaming as being a little bit of the tip of the spear for blockchain adoption because um, the gaming community doesn't need to be taught what the value of virtual currencies and virtual items are. They have that habit already. Um, so introducing that kind of use case to them is very straightforward. Um, I do think though that one of the reasons that we as a company gravitated towards this very quickly as soon as we became acquainted with it, frankly, has to do with, you know, in full disclosure, the age of senior management, because we were all around in the 90s for the first generation of the web. And honestly, these questions strike me exactly the same as when I used to go into corporates in 1998 and say, look, let me build you a website. And they're like, why would I want a website? What do I need that for? Nobody's online. You can't sell anything. Who would like, you want me to sell clothing on the internet? Are you kidding? You can't try it on. That's ridiculous, right? And so I, I think the same is true today because the hard thing to understand about blockchain is that it's a generic technology. And so as is an NFT, right? You can tokenize anything as an NFT, literally. And so we're coming up with specific use cases for it, but it's not just one thing, just in the same way that, you know, I could tell you that I have a website, but that's meaningless because it could be anything. It can be brochureware, e-commerce, you know, whatever it is. Um, but it's an amazing enabling tool. And I think it's particularly amazing for what we loosely call the creator economy these days, because we've come up with a technology that allows us in the most efficient way possible to effect secure peer-to-peer transactions, right? What Web3 is, you know, loosely is, uh, and I probably should have started with this at the beginning, you know, Web1, the idea is that Web1 was that period back in the 90s when the internet was all about just reading information. And Web2 was the part where we, we talk about reading and writing information. So that was sort of the next evolution where people were um, writing blogs, and then they started uploading music and videos and sharing on social media. So that's Web2. So Web3 is the part where we add that secure transaction layer. So we're able to actually transact things peer to peer. And the internet was never designed to do that in the beginning, which is why we've never been able to have a, a scheme where we could you know, download MP3 music files and things like that. We've coalesced around streaming platforms largely to control IP because of the lack of copyright protection. Um, but blockchain changes this. And so that's what's quite exciting. Now we have this incredibly low cost way for us to do transactions amongst each other. It will really change, I think, how we think about monetizing things as creators, because we no longer need to rely on centralized platforms to provide all of that inter, um, intermediary security. And by extension, it means we don't have to pay them extremely large fees to do so. 
and that's the biggest tax on innovation in our industry tends to be um, the friction of fees in the middle. Um, ask any musician, you know, about their royalties on Spotify compared to before Spotify. Can I just jump in on a couple of points? So, um, so for full disclosure, I, um, in my teens, I, I started off earning money writing games for, you'll remember, Vic-20s and Commodore 64s, and I sort of like uh, lost track during the Amiga era. And I'm, I'm sure it sounds like a real dinosaur compared to most of our listeners. But the, the problem that you have referring to that is, in the real world, obviously, you've got the law of physics, and that sort of governs things like BMWs. But just looking at it with a sort of gamer's hat on it, if I've got my car, taking your example, it's got to have certain properties. And doesn't that very much limit all the other game developers that all suddenly to embed this standardized type property, you know, an item or, or on my platform, I have to almost be limited about what is the common accepted standard for a car? What can it do? All these other various elements around there. Doesn't that make it sort of somewhat difficult to get the cross platforming? Ben, ben gets the award for diving deepest into the weeds fastest. Um, so you're exactly correct. So this, this kind of um, interoperability is extremely difficult. Um, we actually co-founded um, something called the Open Metaverse Alliance for Web3 or o OMA3, which is a nonprofit consortium um, of industry players to try to approach just this problem. Basically, get a bunch of companies from Web3, all the best and brightest, into a room to decide, how do we solve this problem? Um, and it's very difficult. The short and pithy answer is it's up to the users, meaning it's up to like, for example, if you have, if you've created, you know, a bunch of cars for your video game and I create a second game, I can choose whether I want to create a game that accommodates your cars or to just ignore you. That's a, for me, it's a marketing opportunity, right? Um, so that's kind of the short answer to it. I think the long answer is that ultimately we will have to come up with certain standards to this. Um, and those standards will um, encompass everything from uh, the graphical end. So how things are displayed, resolutions and file sizes and that kind of stuff. Um, token standards is actually the easiest bit, the exchange of value. Um, and the, the hardest bit that we've come to find um, are actually the, I want to call them sort of the human costs. Um, so things like um, you have a red car and I create a game that's called Blue World, right? And so the question becomes, when your red car comes into Blue World, must it be blue? Or because you own the car, must it be red? And so it's more of a philosophical question in that case. Um, and, and just to jump to the punchline, what we as a community decided was that um, it would be governed by freedom of choice. So ultimately, blue world remains blue, and you have a choice whether or not you want to agree to turn blue in order to go there. Fair enough. Uh, can I then ask a, a sort of related point to that? One of the problems we obviously have is you have some massive industry players, and they are basically imposing their walled garden. I've had the misfortune of um, actually trying to follow the Microsoft Activision case uh, in front of the Federal Trade Commission, where apparently Microsoft are not going to shut everybody off uh, that's on uh, Activision platforms, so they have to con you know, conform to their standard. Don't you have a real risk in that kind of thing that whether it's in the kind of financial side of things or the gaming side of things, you've got these huge giants that already exist in the industry that have amazing distribution, they have marketing, they have various other things. And effectively, you've got a collection of independents on the other side. It does seem a sort of 
one-sided fight, if that's the way you look at it, or, or have you got some kind of secret source or advantage against the bigger players? I think the advantage is that ultimately um, our products always offer better value to customers because at the end of the day, what we're offering through this path of Web3 is this idea of true digital ownership. So let's just take you know a game, for example. If you come to one of our games and you buy tokenized in-game items, NFTs in the game, you own those items. And when I say you own them, you really do own them, meaning you can sell them, you can trade them, you can gift them to somebody, you can destroy them. It's up to you. It's your property. And that's very fundamentally different than what the big game providers um, supply. And so because of that, and, and also let's not get into expectations of profits because I think that's where the headlines get away from themselves. I think the way I like to think of it is it's actually a lot more like the kind of gaming I grew up on where you had physical media, you know, you had cartridges and things like that, where, as I said, you could take those cartridges and there was a secondhand market and you knew that you were going to lose money selling it secondhand, but you could essentially recycle your stuff at a loss. And we don't have that in digital, but there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to have that in digital where I can get rid of my red car in my digital game for, you know, 10 cents on the dollar later on because it's mine. I paid for it, right? And so I think the thesis is that if we can provide a similar um, play experience in the game, entertainment experience, but demonstrate that one involves ownership and the other one does not, I think consumers will vote with their feet. No, I, I've got a lot of sympathy for that. And one of the things that sort of annoyed me was certainly iTunes is the way that you used to be able to load up your own music. And then over, as you know, over the last few years, because of changes in the legal uh, arrangements, effectively that's all embedded on iTunes going forward and your independent kind of purchases that you're able to upload have been replaced by their kind of Apple Music products. Can I can I just take in a slightly different direction? Um, where do you see the industry at the moment? Because coming back being my old fogey banker, but we've obviously had a huge amount of liquidity injected into markets over the last five, 10 years. We've had a, an enormous amount of money that's gone into the venture capital industry. We've obviously had a lot of headlines last year about you know what happened to whether it was uh, Bitcoin or some of the other kind of more public areas of NFTs. Where do you broadly see the industry at the moment? Is it you know there's still some great ideas moving through underlying in your world, or there's just going to be a lot of carnage for the next two or three years, and there's a real risk that good ideas get thrown out because simply there's so many other problems elsewhere. First, I think there's probably less carnage in our industry than in in markets generally, um, in other industries. And I think that's only because we're in a very, very high growth sector. So for us, carnage means slowing down to you know 50% a year growth as opposed to 500%. Um, but I think most importantly, you know, we we generated a lot of headlines as an industry because um, <clears throat> I think some of the numbers involved during the bull market period over the last several years were quite eye-popping. But in fact, you know, it's an early industry and people forget that it takes time to build up great products and to build an ecosystem around new ideas. Um, and that's why I always try to remind people that, you know, at least from our vantage point, we've been in the mobile game business for a long time. And people forget that, you know, landmark products like Angry Birds, for example, as a mobile game, didn't come out until three years after the App Store was opened up. But most people, that's the first game they can really think of playing on their smartphone. Um, but it took years for somebody to figure out how to adapt to the new medium and really represent a product that made that medium shine. And so I think we've seen some of those cases in Web3, um, particularly in the gaming business. Um, but they've been 
um, impressive experiments, but they haven't yet been real sustainable franchises. Um, it's just that those successful experiments have resulted in billions of dollars of revenue. So the experimentation scale has been massive, um, but the industry is still quite nascent. Maybe, maybe to continue down this kind of wormhole, but going more into an investment uh, lens, you've got a portfolio set of over 400 investments, something like that. Um, and I dare say, um, you know, dear reader, they might have heard of Sandbox, but maybe, you know, maybe they, they're not going to be able to see the background uh, that you've got at the moment. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about investment and, you know, some of the learnings that you've, uh, you know, seen over the last uh, period of time investing into blockchain companies. I think the interesting thing about um, investing into blockchain-based businesses is that um, from an investor standpoint, actually, there become new opportunities for investment because you can invest not just into equity, um, but also into tokens um, and be these non-fungible tokens or fungible tokens. So you can actually invest into the product of the business um, as well as the equity of the business itself. Um, and so I think that you know that's also given rise to a class of of crypto native funds um, who make only token token based investments. And these are still venture investments. It's just a different instrument that they're investing in. And often what they're doing is they're trading um, liquidity um, and risk because they feel like if they take a token position, then they have an earlier chance at liquidity because they're not necessarily waiting for an IPO or a trade sale. Um, and so as a result of that, they're willing to take bigger risks and invest earlier on in the in the venture life cycle. So I think that's in, its, in and of itself really pushed a lot of early stage investing in Web3, um, which frankly was great because it's helped to build an ecosystem in a very short amount of time. Um, because you know we have a very vibrant and thriving Web3 ecosystem of of startups um, and of those companies that that you mentioned, Tom. You know, the vast majority of our investing has been in that pre-seed to Series A kind of sweet spot. Keep going. I mean, I mean, we've talked with a number of VC investors so far, and I'm understanding their you know the broad thesis and stuff. Do you have a broad thesis of how those investments tie together or a direction for them? I mean, you've talked about the NFTs. And I think people are going to get their heads around that if, uh, um, you know, if they do some reading too, maybe you can supply some secondary reading for them. But, you know, for the investment thesis, how does that kind of look in your mind? Sure. If you look at our portfolio, we've we've invested in a very broad um, portfolio of things, mainly because we're a strategic investor, first and foremost, because, you know, the majority of our investing historically has been done off the balance sheets. Um, so we're more of a corporate VC from that angle. Um but the thing about Web3 that gives us confidence in our investing strategy is the fact that um, it's it's really the technical aspect I mentioned earlier. This idea that content um, <clears throat> and these tokenized assets are able to interoperate potentially amongst each other. And what this does is, as a portfolio investor, give us the chance to assist our portfolio companies in working together in a way that is actually much closer than traditional technology VC investing. So for example, you know, to go back to Ben, our discussion of Blue World and the red cars and things like that, if we invested in both of those games that have cars in them, we can then encourage them to interoperate their cars in between each other for mutual benefit, to cross-pollinate communities and to grow a wider motoring ecosystem between those two games. Whereas in traditional software applications, they would actually be competing directly with each other for users because it's a zero-sum game for users. Right, the way we think about traditional games is 
you have a user acquisition funnel, you bring customers into the user acquisition funnel, and any customers I have in my game are at the expense of my competitor's game. But Web3 is different because there is actually an incentive to share. And this is something that I um, maybe we didn't get into earlier, but when you create an NFT, when I create a car in my game, um, I am the creator. And so therefore, I am eligible for a creator royalty. So when I sell that car for the first time, I take a commission on selling that. Well, I sell it for the retail price if I sell it the first time, but I get a commission. When that car sells peer to peer, so if I sell it to Ben and then Ben sells it to Tom, um, I, as the creator, also get a creator royalty on that secondary sale. Usually, most people um, you know, garner creator royalties on the order of maybe 1% or 2%. It's a relatively small fee, but it's a really important fee because that fee gives me as the creator an incentive to keep my assets open, to want to share them with other applications because there's a benefit for me. So if I create all the best cars, but I create games that aren't fun and everybody wants to use my games in uh, my cars in other people's games, that's okay because they still want my cars and they still trade my cars and they get utility elsewhere, but I still get commission on all those secondary royalties, right? And so there's an incentive to grow this network effect of utility of those assets. And that's really important because it allows for the cross-fertilization of content. And this is a really powerful idea. Can I just ask, um, taking things in a slightly different way, but can I ask about the legality and, and taxation of a lot of this? I know this sounds, it's a huge step, but one of the things that struck me with Web3 is you've got the ability to kind of create a completely parallel economy that's completely unbound by any kind of geography or other sort of national considerations. How do you think about that might evolve or, or how countries are going to react? Because theoretically, I don't, why should I be paying tax in one particular country when effectively I'm doing all this business online with people around the world? It strikes me it's going to be incredibly hard for governments to get hold of that. So I think that there's a there's a philosophical question as to, you know, what tax should be levied on such practices. Uh, I think the e-commerce business has faced that as well. Um, but I think the practical consideration is, at least the way that it's being regulated at the moment, is that you know, if you if you affect a transaction as a citizen that results in a profit, then you pay tax on your profits as a citizen, and that's you know typically capital gains, um, like in any jurisdiction, whether it's an in-game item or it's you know or it's something bigger than that. And and just the other one I was going to ask at the time of recording, we've obviously just had the legal um, case around Ripple. I don't know if you've been following that, but. They've obviously decided that apparently Ripple isn't a security in their case, which, which as an old fogey banker struck me as rather strange and something that I suspect is going to appeal. But is that, again, anything that you sort of had consideration around about, you know, the state's power to force you into the monopoly of how they control currency? Yes, I think the the difficulty is that everything's not so cut and dry, right? Um, and I think what we have when we start to think about things that are digital, is you have the ability to generate tremendous uh, liquidity relatively easily because it's online and because you have enormous power of distribution to a global audience. And so I think it begs then a question of, does liquidity therefore define something to be a security? Because, you know, is your house a security? Well, not if it's, no, nobody in the world thinks that a piece of real estate is a security. But as I <clears throat> often made the comparison with with friends, I live in the UK now. I, I lived in Hong Kong for many years. 
And throughout the 25 years that I lived there, if you put your apartment on the market and it didn't sell in five days, there was something wrong. So the market has tremendously high liquidity. Whereas, you know, where I grew up in America, your house can be on the market for six months before somebody comes and looks at it because it just depends on where you live. Um, and, and still that doesn't make a difference. So the question is, if I have digital trading cards compared to physical Panini cards, should they be considered securities because I have a tremendous liquidity for digital trading cards? And that is actually one of the, one of the questions that's being put um, up for debate by the SEC. I would argue no, um, for sure not, because these are physical goods and these are, when I say physical goods, they're unique goods um, and they're collectibles and they have a purpose. Um, and I think that that's very, very important because it becomes a slippery slope when we start to think about anything that has a resale value as being a security. Right, okay. Um, again, um, just taking it into a slightly different direction, but when you are making an investment, what do you look for in terms of, um, we've asked other VCs, other kind of professional investors, what are the key things you're looking for in terms of you know making that investment? How much is the jockey and how much is the horse and how much is potential market share? So I think for for us, it's it evolves over time because um, you know during the period from 2019 to 2020 through 2021, um, kind of early 2022, um, pretty much all of the investments that we were making um, tended to be um, first movers in their space, and so it was about companies. Um, taking over mindshare and boxing out a space of I'm going to be the you know premier provider of you know NFT ticketing or wallets for the financial services industry or whatever you know and now I think that the market has shifted to become a little bit more bearish from an investor standpoint we can afford to be a little bit more choosy about the companies we're looking at and at the same time the companies themselves are tending to be a bit more mature um, so we're investing in, I'd say, a little bit later stage. Um, you know, you could say, look, I, I want to see a little bit of product market fit, or I want to see a, a first demo first, rather than just investing off plan because you have a good team. I think it makes sense. Uh, as a, as the space was more about um, getting getting people into Web three, you know, that kind of the critical moments and you know, drag them out from jobs to take the risk as well. I think it's a, certainly a vibrant economy. And the thing that drew me to it was just the amount of incredible people. Uh, you know, not exactly knowing the problem they're solving always, but just working hard to find and and build stuff. Um, I actually wanted to go back a few conversations, Ben, if you don't mind, um, because uh, I, there's one thing that I feel like we didn't quite do justice, Robbie, and maybe I could ask you to frame it up like, like in the profile picture kind of world, like with the art and the royalties. I don't think people understand the, like the simplicity of what you're saying, a lot of the importance, like... You sell an artwork, like my sister's an artist. She sells an artwork. That's the last time she ever sees that sale. Um, and I think maybe if you frame it up like that rather than the in-the-game ones, because it can get a little confusing. People don't, like, I, I really feel this, that people don't understand the significance of that as a as, as single thing that will change the way that digital uh, assets, you know, um, that you're talking about, the NFTs, is going to evolve. So I think the easiest analogy to make here is actually to the music industry, because the music industry has had a clunky um, but functioning royalty system for the better part of 80 years. Um, and <clears throat> songwriters have always been paid for music played. You know, when, when it's played in a bar or a restaurant or elsewhere, they get a royalty based on that. Um, and it can be very, very small or very big. 
um, but they get a royalty based on music played. And and Spotify largely, you know, goes after the same model. Um, it's just that uh, the slices tend to be very very thin, from what I understand. Um, and the difficulty, it's a in terms of how people are compensated, the system makes absolute sense, right? Because it incentivizes creativity. And it says to the artist, hey, if you create something, here is an annuity for you. You know, as long as your creation is popular, you will continue to benefit for the long term from this creation. And from a pricing perspective, it also means that the artist themselves does not have to ask for all the money up front because they get more than one bite at the apple. And this is really important because when you go back to your sister's case, Tom, and think of art, this means that you don't have to charge $50,000 for your art piece up front because if you're going to get royalties over time, you can make the prices more accessible to people because you want to actually encourage ownership to be broad and you want to encourage building a community of fans for your artwork who will trade your artwork amongst each other. Um, and so the problem though with going back to the music royalties example, with the traditional way music royalties are executed is that it's very onerous. You know, it, it grew up in the 1950s and it's very much an analog system that's reliant on several oligopolistic companies that maintain these vast databases of songs and everybody has to be members of certain music royalties. Anyway, long story short, the amount of fees that are charged in the middle because of these centralized databases are massive. Um, and so what we can do in Web3 is we can now start to break down that system because we have technology that can replace it in a trust uh, in a trustless and secure way um, that allows artists to then trade and transact amongst each other. Um, and sorry, artists and customers and listeners in this case um, to transact amongst each other um, at, with very little friction. And so therefore the fees that can be charged in the middle are very small. And so the end result is the artist will make a lot more. So if we look at, for example, the issue of NFT royalties, um, over the past year in 2022, um, there were roughly $27 billion paid out in NFT royalties um, globally and compared that with Spotify, which was about $7 billion um, in royalties that were paid out on Spotify. And Spotify is the biggest digital royalty distribution platform outside the blockchain. Um, but the key difference between those two examples is that the world of people consuming NFTs in 2022 is probably at most around 100 million people globally, um, whereas Spotify has 700 million subscribers. Um, so it gives you an idea of the immense level of royalties that go back to creators when you have a much more efficient platform like that, or technology, I should say, rather than platform. I think it's a super interesting thread. Sorry, Ben. I hope you'll uh, indulge me just for a second because I've heard your um, co-founder, uh, your your uh, partner Yat, talk about this, and also compare the stage that the royalties are at in the NFT world to, you know, the analog system of music. Or we're probably past that now, but I think that's a great way to look at it. It's like you know they they have evolved very with a lot of with a small number of highly invested parties into a slightly different system than was original because obviously we've got digital music and we've got these platforms. Um, but the same is kind of happening with NFTs. Is that is that uh, because uh, there's uh, there's been a, quite a few shakeups uh, in 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 the market for royalties too, just trading platforms and other stuff that people might not be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. And this and this issue of royalties is very dear and dear to our hearts because it's absolutely essential to the proper functioning of a system that we we 
pay and we reward creators appropriately. And I think it's this exploitation of creators that has actually led to kind of a groundswell of of moral support for the Web3 industry. We see a lot of artists, whether they're musicians or graphic artists and game makers coming to Web3 because they're like, look, I'm tired of these platforms taking all my money, essentially, and we're not getting a fair shake for the work that we create. And so actually, you know, Web3 provides an amazing set of tools um, for, for growing a creator economy business. I expect that's going to be the first time that uh, a lot of our listeners have going to have heard of NFT. So I think there's going to be a lot of stuff for them to chew off. I think it's fascinating. I'd love to see some of these things broken up. Um, over the last few years, it just struck me that we've seen a lot of oligopolistic behavior uh, developing in the world with certain companies kind of, um, you know, amassing huge rights, whether they're digital or in, in the financial world. But I'm not sure it's been the best for innovation or indeed you know, the wider economy and society. I agree with you completely, Ben. And I think that's why you have to think that we've we've come so far as an industry. And when I say industry, I mean sort of the blockchain-based derivative industries um, in the last, uh, I guess it's decade really since, since the beginning uh, or since the popularity um, began. Um, but you have to remember that even though NFTs and what we're doing in gaming now um, and art is relatively sophisticated, it all began with Bitcoin, which was a very, very simple and binary idea, this idea to create an alternative to fiat currency. And <clears throat> Bitcoin was created as a reaction to the financial crisis because a group of software programmers were upset about the fact that a small oligopoly of bankers were allowed to crash the global economy and there was nothing that anybody consumers could do about it. And and the patent unfairness of, of that lack of agency over their own our own futures. And I think that that forms the sort of moral underpinning of this idea that, hmm, you know, Web2 centralized software platforms have given us tremendous convenience um, and a lot of innovation, don't get me wrong, but tremendous convenience. Um, but it does come at a cost and it comes at a cost to privacy. It comes at a, a literal cost to the fees and expenses that we incur. Um, and so now that we've seen what kind of innovations are possible, like, you know, post pandemic, I, I don't carry cash with me anymore. You know, at least in London, I don't need cash anywhere. Pretty much everybody accepts contactless payments. Um, but that doesn't mean that the method that we have for it is yet the best. Maybe there could be better, but at least now we can see what's possible. So it's time for us to innovate on top of that and show that there are better solutions that, you know, perhaps um, are, are, um, are better for consumers. I couldn't agree more. And you talk about the bankers, but uh, more so even look at what the central bankers have done over the last three to four years in terms of absolute devaluation of currency. And millions of people are effectively, you know, seeing falling living standards based on a theory, a series of, shall we say, um, non-scientific theories as ever propagated by the economics uh, profession. Anyway, enough of that. I know we've got to wind up. So, if you were doing it again, what advice would you give to somebody setting out, thinking of setting up their own business or, or maybe backing businesses? What sort of key, you know, single piece of advice you'd say to them about, you know, how to look at things now you've got all this experience, you've seen all these. Mm. So I think um, it's interesting. Um, there's a meme that goes around in crypto circles, which is do your own research. Um, and, and I think that that's always, a, that's always good advice when investing in anything. Um, but I think the most important thing to do is first get into it. Meaning I would encourage everybody who's listening to go out and open a blockchain wallet, get yourself some Ethereum and just try something. You know, Don't spend much money, just 
play, right? Go and put some money into a DeFi transaction. Go and buy a, an in-game item. Just use it and see what it does for yourself. And then I think you can start doing more investigation into where you might want to make investments. But I think become a consumer and a user first, because that's always the best education. I think that's absolutely the way that my journey started. Um, and I'm sure it's like yours, M much much quizzing from friends and they say, just have a go. And I was oh, okay. And down, down the Warren uh, rabbit hole you go. And, uh, you know, a bit like Alice, you know, you may not come out. Um, and uh, that's not altogether a bad thing. Uh, to round up, I love doing like a plug. It doesn't need to be financial or business related. If there's something, you know, a cause dear to your heart or something that you're doing, a book that you're reading, that you're publishing, that you're doing, um, you know, we love to give everyone the opportunity to, uh, you know, talk up what they're, what they're up to and what they're cooking and what they're interested in. Is there anything that, uh, you know, that you're up to at the moment that you'd like to talk about? Lots of exciting stuff. So if you like um, great games, we have a fantastic AAA game that uh, called Life Beyond that is coming out shortly and it's in open alpha so people can come and check it out. It's made by our studios here in Paris, um, where I am today. Um, we have, if you are a teacher, um, we have <clears throat> a fantastic thing called the Open Campus Protocol, which is a Web3 solution, excuse me, um, for teachers. And uh, this allows them to tokenize as NFTs their coursework um, and create a direct relationship with their students online. As I said, you know, Web3 is tremendous for the creator economy. Um, so these are a couple of things. And if you just like to play mobile games, then we have something called ARC8, A-R-C number eight. Um, you know, it's a play on arcade. And uh, you can just go to the app store and download it and start playing fun mobile games. All of these will get you into blockchain in one way or another. Well. Thank you very much for your time today, Robbie. It's been a real pleasure and uh, making making that time whilst you're uh, in Paris. Um, and uh, any final thoughts from you, Ben? But uh, mostly just thanks for the insight and uh, opening up Pandora's box of NFTs to uh, um, a lot of uh, crusty bankers. What did you call yourself, Ben? Uh, foggy banker. Oh, foggy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no it's been brilliant Robbie I'd love to get you back on later on when there's obviously because your industry is just developing so quickly but no it's it's been really fascinating and just sat slightly in the middle more towards the old traditional finance sector I could see a lot of the applications coming through with web3 but a lot of my um peers would obviously focus on some of we say the frothier side of things around cryptocurrency and say well the whole the whole thing's worthless and it, it's, it shouldn't be uh, kind of taken seriously. So, no, it's been really useful to hear for somebody who's deep in the industry, understands, you know, some of the various aspects and, and where the applications are. Thank you. No, it's been really fun. I appreciate you guys and uh, giving me the chance to, to come in and chat. Cool. Cheers, Robbie. Cheers, Robbie.